Contains scenes of sexual nature. This program contains strong lunch from the offset. Welcome to Just a Story, where your special guest star, introductionist Caleb Mike, and a second somewhat blind Mike from Unbuttoned History on the Rocks Labs Podcast Network. What is Unbuttoned History, other blinder Mike? Informative, casual, and a little bit sexy. Unbuttoned History is the raucous history podcast for people who want to learn a bit about yesteryear, but with silly voices and swearing. It sounds fabulous. Mm. So today we are, yes, we've been asked by the wonderful people at Just a Story to give a little intro yeah. to their topic, yeah. which is, what, what is it, Caleb? It, so apparently there's like a, an urban legend where a daughter's been using a mother's birth control pills because she's been um, having like hardcore, unprotected sex, getting cream pied hardcore left and right <laughs> well, by her boyfriend. So she doesn't want her mom to know that she's basically filled with cum at this point. <laughs> so she's been replacing all of her, her mom's birth control pills with aspirin. And the mom's like, oh no, now I'm pregnant. <laughs> so before, I mean, I'm, I'm, being, I'm being very glib and I'm, I'm generalizing, but before we get into any of this, let's go around the table and like say whether we think this is real or not. Do we think this has ever happened in the history of the, the pill? Oof. It only used to have happened once for the story to be true. I mean, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people. But let's go around. All right. Blind Mike. Yes. Other Mike. <laughs> Hard no. I I I think it happened. I think it happened. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Let's divide this. Two different questions. One, do you believe that a daughter ever replaced her mother's pills with baby aspirin? The story says baby aspirin specifically. Yep, that's true. Yep. That, that part, maybe. I can get on board with that. The second part, that the mother was fooled by this... And then got yeah, summarily, another... and then summarily got pregnant. That's the part of the yeah. story I have trouble swallowing. Also, even yeah. with a tall when glass she noticed that the package has been has been notice the package with. been crinkled because uh, you got to pop out pills. You got to like push them out. Do they have also, the foil yet? How far back in time is this? Well, that's that's an important mm. also question. I think I, I don't think I think like the foil wrap that we all know and love that probably wasn't the way it was done when the pill first came out. God, I wish the broadcast girls were here. They did, they know all this oh, shit. Yeah, yeah. it's probably like those little Necco wafer things. It's probably a package like that. Yeah, Just it was it was it was it was Pez. It used to be Pez. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything was as we all know. Before, before civilization started, everything was in fucking wax paper. Yeah, like get get your pill in an Elvis Pez dispenser. Pull yeah. back Elvis's head, and then of course back then you would go to your local butcher to get. Your <laughs> and so he would cut up a hog, get you some pork loin, and then he'd be like, "Oh, you want your your, your cum pills? <laughs> and then not have another baby with Trevor? <laughs> well, just just Google this shit. I mean, it's just." Aspirin looks well, nothing like Well, no, don't like Google this shit. Listen to this podcast. Well, Google, no, Google image search even aspirin, and then Google image search the pill. They do yes, not, they don't, they look, the don't same. look the same at all. Right, you're making a strong case. I believe that uh, someone might have tried doing this. I do not believe that a grown-ass fucking woman was fooled and There's taken in. There's some dumb motherfuckers out there, though. There's people who yell at the moon. <laughs> They're angry that it exists. Maybe if you know your mother's an alcoholic and always takes her morning pills like in the dark. Ooh. But here's the other thing that's interesting is so the pill exists. So it's, it's like what, like the 1950 on. Uh, so it's at that point, but like it's also like, I don't know, like the it's got to be like the mom's hip enough to be taking it, the daughter's hip enough to like 
know she's taking it. I don't know. It's interesting. You know what? Let's just might as well just to- well, let's toss it to just a just a story because he'll actually tell us about this instead of us bullshitting about what it could possibly could be. <laughs> Find us on iTunes on Button History. Yeah, get out there. Have you heard the story of- and written on the wall? And everyone blood. has the different stories of oh, this happened to my brother. This Mister telling you stories of the old. Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just a Story podcast. I'm Jake and I'm Sam and we're here to tell you a story. Each week, we take a look at the stories we tell over and over again, what our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. Welcome back to the show, everyone. We missed you so much, and I just want to thank you all for being out there and listening to me and positively reinforcing all of my bad habits and proving that all those therapists were wrong and I am special. You are special. I am. I want to thank everybody for rating and reviewing the show. We've got some new reviews up. Uh, up to 50 reviews. Mostly five stars. Mostly. Vast, vast majority. Set that one guy. By the way, guys, we're going to curse on this episode. <laughs> By the way, guys, we really fucking are. Explicit warning. <laughs> this episode is going to talk about... A friendly warning to any of you who may be listening with children's. This episode is going to acknowledge the existence of sex. And how you could have avoided having those children. Who are listening with you right now and looking at you like, why don't you love me? We'll tell you later, kids. But before we get into that, you know, we have also had some great outreach from our listeners talking about some different folklore and legends and things they grew up with. And we'll be hitting some of those real soon. So if you have some stories your parents used to try to keep you up nights with or keep you out of the forest with or keep you from hitting your brother with cautionary tales or things your grandma used to say that you always thought were just ramblings of a crazy old woman feel free to call the urban legend hotline and tell us all about it the number is 512-222-3375 And if you are looking for another fantastic podcast to listen to, we have our other historical storytelling audio drama podcast, Audio Dime Museum. That's right. And this season, we are leaving the world of the Dime Museum, momentarily at least, and exploring the weird and wonderful history of the circus. So you can find that by searching Audio Dime Museum on iTunes. And you can also find us on a variety of social media outlets. Such as Twitter at JustAStoryPod. You can also email us at JustAStoryPod at gmail.com. And you know, if you are looking for another entertaining podcast, may we suggest... Unbuttoned History. And that is who has brought us our fantastic opening for this episode. So thanks to the fabulous folks over there, and you can find them on iTunes as well. So as we alluded to, today we're going to talk about... Sex, baby. Kind of. Yeah, sort of. What it leads to. You have sex and then you get pregnant and then you die. Yes. I've seen Mean Girls. We start off with a classic urban legend from kind of starting in the 50s is really where I think it started. Right when birth control really came out and became available. And this is the baby aspirin legend. Dun dun dun. 
Would you have to love the play on words? You know I love figures of speech kind of more than anything in the whole world. So yeah, that this one's a winner in my book right off the bat. So in this legend... We have a teenage girl. And you know how teenage girls are. For once, <laughs> she's not going to be killed. No! Sorry. Disappointing. I know. <sighs> and this teenage girl is canoodling. Oh no. With her boyfriend. On purpose? Well, I guess so. Okay. So she's definitely going to be killed. You would think. Right? This is an urban legend. But almost something just as bad happens. What happens? Her mom walks in on them. No! You're, okay, you're right. You're right. It is almost as bad. Almost. Of course, it kicks the boyfriend out of the house, and mom starts to lecture her daughter on you know, what she was doing. I can't believe you were over there having sex with your boyfriend. So you're going to have babies. You're going to die. You're going to get STD. Etc. It's a very enlightened 50s mother. Well, she saw all of the propaganda posters from World War II. Oh, you're right. God, Google that. Google STD posters, World War II. It will make your day so much better. And as she's going on and on about, you can get pregnant, you can die, etc. Then daughter kind of has a little smirk on her face and, and stops mom and says, Mom, I have been taking precautions. She's like, have you been using the devil's prophylactic she's like oh no no i'll do you one better moms for the last few months as this teenage girl's been sexually active she has been borrowing her mother's birth control pills it's not really something you can share with a friend yeah there aren't extras (laughs) she admits that she'd been replacing her mother's missing pills with baby aspirin that's hilarious And as all good stories go, there's a lovely twist. The mother finds out she's pregnant a month later. She should have been taking precautions. Really? And so as I said, this legend, mm, there's not really a good hard date on where it came from, when it started, but it's been around pretty much since birth control has been around. And by birth control, as we'll call it frequently, we mean the oral contraceptive pill. Right. It's the pill. You know, it started... In be- quotes. Yeah. Well, with a capital P. True. It's so funny, because it really is. Like, in all literature and writing from, like, the 60s and 70s, when you look at it, when it refers to oral contraceptives, there are no brand names associated with it. It's the pill, and it's capital T, capital P. It has a little moniker. Right. Even though there's lots of other pills. <laughs> For lots of other things. Yeah, I mean, some people say that that might have come from just people trying to be really discreet about it. You know, going to the doctor and being like, hey, can you get me the The pill? pill. Wink, wink. And they're like, Viagra? And they're like, no, the other one. Actually, it's it's coined by Margaret Sanger. Oh, okay. She started writing in like 1912 that she wished there were a miracle pill. Okay. And then in her later writing, she'd be like, I'm still looking for the miracle pill. And then it became short into the pill. So she wanted a new drug? Like Huey Lewis. Yes. One that don't make her sick. Actually, we could probably go through the lines of that song, and structure this episode. Ah, we should have. Missed opportunity. Next time we do a birth control episode. (laughs) So, you know, this legend has some obvious morality (laughs) to it. And it's obviously morals. In that being, you know, the perils of not having frank discussions about sex with kids. Right, like the birds and the bees talk. Which, one day, Jacob, we're going to look into why it is called that. (laughs) One day. And of course, the 
lack of availability of birth control to people that need it. Well, and to be fair, if this legend started circulating late 50s, early 60s, you know, kind of coinciding with the evolution and marketing of early forms of birth control pills, it was not available. There was like a secret handshake and code knock and a password and you had to be married and in some states it was illegal and actually criminal and it may not have just been mom that was keeping her daughter from birth control pills oh yeah we were both teenagers once were we supposedly i've always been a grumpy old man (laughs) that's true we know that teenagers know what to do to not get pregnant i I sense a, a a tinge of irony in your tone there, sir. So, Sam, what are some things that you grew up hearing would keep you from becoming pregnant? Keeping an aspirin between your knees. See, if the mom had just done that with what her daughter left in her contraceptive pad, everything would have been fine. We'll solve the problem. Two birds, one prescription. It's over the counter. <laughs> of course, you always hear you can't get pregnant the first time. While I'd like to think that that kind of cruel irony doesn't exist in the world it's medically unsound right because you can definitely get pregnant the first time you have sex you have always had the same risk of becoming pregnant with an average over the cycle of being about a one in 20 chance so sorry if that was all of our listeners grand plan for avoiding pregnancy for the rest of your life only doing it once we have terrible news so one of the like weirder And more pervasive things that I truly did hear and I heard of people doing when I was in high school was the Coke bottle douche. Right. Well, you know, douching has been used for millennia as a way to try to prevent pregnancy. And it's very ineffective. But the logic isn't hard to it's not hard to grasp where people would have gotten that idea. Like, oh, if I just wash it, if I just get it out of there. Right, but it only takes a few minutes for sperm to get to the cervix, and of course it only takes one, and so you have to be super efficient and super fast. <laughs> ninja! Douche ninja! Yeah, so the the story was that you poured out half of a bottle of, of Coke, of Coke 7-Up or Mountain Dew were the three that you heard about most commonly. Dr. Pepper apparently didn't have the same pizzazz, and you don't want to go to Pepsi because, obviously... And you would think you'd go for the doctor. Right. saying. Right, no. I mean, he has some medical experience. Right, no. But you pour half of it out, you shake it up. <laughs> it's fizzy. <laughs> it's fizzy. This is very uncomfortable. Yeah, I, yeah, I never did it. I, I, but I did know people who, who did that after every sex act. Well, you know... There's a little bit of validity to it. Don't tell them that. Don't. No, you hey, shouldn't do no, it. No, hey, this is not medical advice. Do not listen. Like, we are not condoning the use of Coca-Cola douches. By the way, this is not medical advice. <laughs> but there were some studies looking at sperm motility with different soft drinks, showing a reduction in sperm motility when treated with them, down to about 70% of the normal motility, so about 30% decrease with Diet Coke being the most effective. That's because Diet Coke causes cancer. All the sperm got cancer. And growing up, when I was a kid, 
Surge was a big thing. You know, Surge being kind of like a Mountain Dew like drink. You still can get it today. It's in stores. Like I've seen it in like several gas stations and stuff recently. So I don't know what that's about. I don't know what the Surge and Surge is about. Nostalgia. Really? Are we down to Surge? Is that what we haven't revisited yet? (laughs) Okay. And when I was a kid, everyone always said, oh, they'll shrink your balls. Yeah, no, I heard that too. There's been that similar kind of urban legend going around that it would decrease your sperm count or shrink your testicles and whether that'd be related to the really high caffeine content or due to the yellow dye that was used in it but of course that's not true so how did the sperm respond when they put them in surge they actually increased motility they surged caffeine itself not surge has been shown to increase the motility of sperm Awesome. Okay, so obviously another important point that we need to cover is the idea of positional birth control, like the Kama Sutra for no babies, which includes standing up or the woman being on top. Or like standing on your head after. Yeah. Or like jumping up and down after. Jumping jacks after. All related to gravity. Yeah. All really bad plans. So really, Isaac Newton invented birth control. Makes you wonder what actually fell on his head. No, no, none of those things work. None of those things work, especially standing on your head. That's a really bad idea if you're trying not to get pregnant. Another one is that you can't get pregnant if you have sex in the shower or in a pool or in a hot tub. Right, and that really... No, sorry, doesn't do anything. No, it doesn't do anything. But they did, on some of the sites I looked at, which I looked at a lot of like teenage sex ed websites, and one of the best ones I found was stayteen.org. So if you have kids who are like preteens or teenagers, and they're asking you questions and you don't know all the answers, it's a really good place to send them. I was very impressed with the quality of information and the writing style on that site. It's all very easily digestible and very informative and fact-based. Uh, and not sensationalized or dogmatic in either direction. They did have a thing that was like, can you get pregnant if a guy ejaculates in a hot tub and you're in the hot tub with him? And I was like, that's from Glee. <laughs> yeah, that legend has been around that like it's sitting on a surface or something like that. And not really. There's really no evidence of that. There are like two case reports from Germany like in the 70s of it happening. Well, it's a hot, wet environment and they can swim. I can see where your brain would be like, yeah, that's totally possible. Right, but the osmotic balance and the pH are off, so it's not going to work. Sorry. So you're a doctor. God. And there's always the idea that if a woman doesn't orgasm, she can't get pregnant. There's also the idea that if a man doesn't orgasm, nobody can get pregnant. Which, unfortunately... Not true. Not true. God, it's none of it's true. Closer to true. But... <laughs> Less likely. One of my favorites that I saw was this idea that if a guy just masturbates a lot before he has sex, he'll be out of sperm and then it'll be completely safe. Yeah, you really don't run out like that. I'm sorry. Um, You will decrease your sperm count if you ejaculate several several times before, but you're not going to just dry up. (laughs) Especially if you're a teenage boy. But, you know, I love medical history, and there have been so many different ways people have tried to prevent themselves from being pregnant and getting pregnant over the course of history. Are you going to share some of those with me now? I might. So one old way of doing it would be using lemons. 
in the Talmud, which we seem to reference a lot, uh, and they would use lemon or vinegar soaked sponges and insert them vaginally. And you would have, and the acid supposedly helps stop sperm from working. Now, of course, they didn't know all of that back then, but it was semi-effective. If they don't know about sperm, how do you stumble upon this? Like, how do you, like, one day be like, you know what I bet would make me not get pregnant if I put a lemon-soaked sponge inside my vagina? You know, you just maybe just go through the list. <laughs> Try everything. I mean, that's just, like, a, not an intuitive thing that exists in your home. I mean, what are you doing? Like, polishing a mantle one day and you're like, hmm. <laughs> maybe so. Like, I always wonder, how do people get hungry enough to know that you can eat potatoes? Because they look like rocks. Like, how did that happen? And this is kind of that same idea for me. Like, how do you see that and go, I bet if I put that in my vagina, I wouldn't get pregnant? Well, you know, later on in history, Casanova. I know Casanova. Was said to have used a lemon rind almost as a diaphragm or a cervical cap. He was a smooth talker. And that would, of course, function if it were to block sperm from entering the cervix. And it is the kind of right shape if you had the right lemon and the right cervix matchup. <laughs> that's tempting fate. <laughs> it's just that's tempting fate. Why all the citrus? Oh, we can move away from citrus, of course. In China, they used to drink a mixture of hot mercury. Of course, that would have abortifactant kind of qualities. It would also probably kill you if you did it often enough. Definitely. It can cause kidney damage, brain damage, etc. But um, hey... No babies. No babies. It's all about it. It's like, it balances out. We have two kids. Like, we're going to be talking about children like we don't want them. But we have them and we love them. (laughs) We can't talk about ancient medicine without talking about the Greeks. No, of course not. Pliny. Are you talking about Pliny a No, we're not. It's because he said abstinence is an effective form of birth control and that's just boring. But extremely effective. Yeah, he was like one of the first people to ever figure that out. Yeah, by the way, not having sex is the best way. But if you're going to, we'll talk about what to do. <laughs> not Don't having sex seems to not work for anybody, though. Like, seven people. It's worked for seven people. And so, one Greek physician, Seranus, had some great ideas. Oh, did he? He said that you should abstain from sex during menstruation, because that was your fertile period. Yeah. A little off there. A little yeah. off. He said you should hold your breath during intercourse. <laughs> so, I have to ask... How long can you hold your breath? I want that woman who swims. I want that one. The one that goes down after the oysters. She's the one I want. Give me a girl with good lung capacity any day. Of course, after, you know, you should you should sneeze. <laughs> because that will prevent any sperm from entering the womb. Can't sneezing can't hurt. Won't hurt anything. <laughs> I can't help anything. Like, what are they doing? Huffing pepper? Like, do they just keep a little bedside and they're like <laughs> doing lines of pepper after sex? The Greeks also like to use a mixture of olive oil, yeah, cedar oil, and ointment of lead. And Aristotle wrote about that. I was about to say, I know that one. And that actually has been found to de- decrease sperm motility. Aristotle was a pretty smart guy. And there were a lot of other herbs and plant based medications, mm-hmm. I guess you can call it, um, that were used, and some were actually effective, have a little bit of a little bit of cred. Queen Anne's Lace, which is a wild carrot, 
Um, if you were to use those seeds, does block progesterone synthesis. So would block implantation. Very clever. Side note, man, it looks a lot like hemlock and is related. I actually read a lot about that when I was reading about Virgin, the untouched history, when I read that book way back many episodes ago. They said that a lot of midwives would die. Or because like, they picked the wrong, the wrong one. Mm-hmm. But those would be used, they would make pessaries where they'd use like basically a cheesecloth and they'd put rose hips and Queen Anne's lace and cedar oil and that kind of stuff in them and they would like insert it and you'd leave it in there for a while and then you'd take it out and it was supposed to like create like a coating or something. I don't remember. Well, and in a way you would have, if it did have effects on synthesis of certain hormones that could actually work and then also pessaries have a place in a way because they're kind of like early diaphragms or cervical caps to where they could mechanically block any chance of conception you had other plants too that were used native americans use blue cohosh that has two substances in it one related to oxytocin that does cause uterine contraction so it could be used as like an abortifactant so a lot of the herbs that were used in this time, there are several others, really instead of working as, as true birth control in the sense that how the pill works today, they were more like abortifactants. Would not allow pregnancy to continue. Right, would not allow implantation or cause the uterine to contract, thus Expelling ending it. the pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there were other things that other ancient civilizations used. Egyptians had a lot of great ideas. Boy, did they. It's just in general, but they would use crocodile dung. How? Uh, let your imagination run wild. What? No. Did they, put, did they put poop in their vaginas? Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and they would also use honey. And they would use honey. Honey crystallizes. Exactly. They'd put it over the cervix. Interesting. It would block it. It would cause a mechanical barrier, an actual physical barrier. But- and in ancient Sumeria... They would use opium to do the same thing because opium is a sticky kind of substance. And it does actually have some anti-sperm qualities. Can it be absorbed in the bloodstream? Of course. That, yeah, I'm all, that's the one. That's Let's the do one. that. Yeah. I like that better than poop. And you know, in 10th century Persia, they did recommend jumping backwards seven or nine times. They're voted off the island. <laughs> That one's still around. Come on. <laughs> yeah, it's still not working. Not working since the 10th century. If it was good enough for the Persians, it's good enough for me. No, it's not. We're not going to jump backwards form of birth control. Do you use any forms of contraceptive? Oh, well, we're natural family planners. We like to just jump backwards seven to nine times. We can't decide. Eight's silly. Well, they were lucky numbers. Of course, the Romans like to use animal intestines or bladders. As condoms. I've seen goat bladder mentioned a few times. And that was really kind of definitely used for birth control, but also they're trying to prevent these newfangled STDs coming around. Ah. I think it was King Minos that was described as having scorpions emerge from his penis. Oh my god. No, 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 no. But and they felt that that was, you know, a description of like, you know, gonorrhea or chlamydia, no, et cetera. No. He had scorpions emerge from his penis. He probably literally had scorpions. It was really, really bad. Everyone that had the the STI died out. You know who did it? Who? Hera. 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 It was Hera. Then he should not have been messing around with Zeus. No. Learned that lesson the hard way. And, you know, coming up to modern times, Mm. we talked about all the fun different ways people douche. 
For a short period of time, in the early 1900s, Lysol was used. Not only was Lysol used, sir, Lysol was marketed. Yes, it was covertly marketed for your feminine needs. Oh my god, Google vintage Lysol feminine hygiene. And that's another Google rabbit hole that I suggest you get the into right now. It's like, she was a brilliant wife. She only had one flaw, neglecting her feminine hygiene. <laughs> it was a flaw her husband couldn't tolerate. And then there will be one, and it's like a woman, and she's on one side of a door, and they've drawn big locks on it. Like, it's very obviously, art department has drawn the outlines of locks. And it's like, her hygiene locked away his love. No. They're horrible. Like, they're they're so bad, and they're, like, so misogynist and bullshit, and just, oh, my God. It is like seeing patriarchy distilled into a cleaning solution. It is amazing. And we do not recommend using cleaning solutions. Or sodas, or crocodile poop, or honey, or opium, or... What else is harmful? Mercury, don't do that. Or Queen Anne's lace, which could very easily be mistaken for hemlock. Or and just let's not do those. You things. can jump backwards, but yeah, let's do that. But in 1911, there were 193 known poisonings from Lysol douching. Oh my god! With five deaths. How did she die? Taking care of her feminine hygiene. Thank God, at least she was a good wife. Her love and life were locked away. <laughs> And that brings us to the modern era. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of birth control pills. So, the United States is one of the only Western countries in which birth control was literally criminalized. We're so progressive. We are. Thank you, Puritans. So, on March 2nd, 1873, Congress passed the Comstock Law. It was an anti-obscenity act that specifically listed contraceptives as obscene material, and it outlawed the dissemination of them via postal service or interstate commerce. Thank you for that, Congress. So this is 1873. This is before our modern hormonal forms of birth control. Correct. So what did that include? Okay, so some of the things that existed before the pill that would have been banned by this apparently include Lysol. No, of course not. It's a cleaning solution. For feminine hygiene. And you've got to clean your feminine hygiene. So you have your basic diaphragms. Right. And so a diaphragm is a intravaginal device that physically blocks the entrance of sperm into the cervix. And if sperm cannot get in the cervix into the womb, one cannot get pregnant. Do you know what they're called? Oh, please tell me. Womb veils. Like a bridal veil? Yes. Yes. They were condoms. There were spermicides, the rhythm method. So I guess this would be like materials talking about the rhythm method? Yes. So even like the Pope's favorite form of birth control was outlawed. There were crude forms of IUDs, obviously not at this early point, but before the pill. The cervical cap, there were advances in douche syringe technology. Advances? Yes. Science? Yes, there was science. And I have a little note here that says, Thanks, Goodyear. Vulcanized rubber made all this possible. Like condoms, cervical caps, diaphragms, douche syringe, all of it. So thank you, Mr. Goodyear. Yes. Tires. And no babies. We are going places. And so back in the day, you would have to, just like now you can go and get fitted for like a cervical cap and things like that. Back in the day, you would have to show up with your marriage license. 
mm-hmm. to be able to be fitted. Oh, yeah. That went on for quite a while. We'll talk about that later. Just more context. We've got the Comstock Law passed in 1873. And then in 1920, women are finally given the right to vote. What a terrible idea. What, did, what were we thinking? I mean, what if they had to vote during their menstrual cycle? Yeah, they might vote for Trump. And then, like, fire nukes. Ah! Yeah, but they were. They they were loudmouth and horsey enough. Those stupid suffragettes just ruining it for the rest of us. Thank you, suffragettes. And in 1930, the Anglican Church comes out and says, maybe in some cases birth control is not going to damn you to hell for all eternity. Like, we think it's probably okay sometimes. Only if you're married. Only if you're married, obviously. And only if you have, like, 10 kids and your uterus is falling out and maybe other Protestant churches kind of picked up and ran with that. And pretty soon it was kind of okay everywhere. Like people were not condemning their parishioners to hell. Except the Catholic church. Oh yes. That was the grand exception. So after the Anglican church said it was okay in 1930 on the last day of that year, Pope came forward and said, yes, we Catholics do have an opinion on birth control, and we have decided you're going to hell. And then in the 1950s, the United States was spending $200 million each year on birth control. So there's a little bit of market for it. A little bit of market. And that's not adjusted for inflation. But even in 1950, with that $200 million being spent on birth control, it was still a felony in Massachusetts. Two, exhibit, sell, prescribe, provide, or give out information about any form of contraceptive. And in Connecticut, it was a crime for a couple to use contraceptives. Oh, no. That's 1950. Oh, I'm I'm not surprised. That blows my mind. Um, Being that it's still being argued about this very second. (laughs) But for couples, like, it's not even, I don't know, it just blows my mind. This is the environment in which we get our four leading characters in the development of the birth control pill. Who's in our cast? Well, we have John Rock. Great name. Yeah, is that like our hero? Yeah, I kind of think so. No way. I'm kind of impressed with him. So he's, I think he's kind of the leading man. Uh, But our true hero is the leading woman. Ah, yeah. (laughs) No, it's kind of debatable. Kind of debatable, actually. (laughs) She's a lovely shade of mortal gray. (laughs) For sure. So John Rock. Okay, so he was born in 1890 in Massachusetts. To an Irish Catholic family, which is interesting. And he became a professor of obstetrics at Harvard Medical School. And he decided that he wanted to specialize in working with women who had fertility problems. He said that those were the women that needed the help the most, like that came in that were sad and distraught, whatever. He felt for them. In later years, his work with women, like real world experience with women, would lead him to do things like sign petitions to, you know, Massachusetts trying to get them to decriminalize birth control. And he would be, you know, one of 15 doctors, which is amazing that doctors weren't taking this up as a cause. They're like, that's not a problem. Let me smoke my cigarette and <laughs> move yeah. on. They're like, that's ah, not our job. On that particular petition, he was the only Catholic doctor to sign it in the state. Right. He's going against the Pope. Yeah. Oh, no. John Rock taking on the Pope. Battle Royale. I think he would have won. He opened a rhythm method clinic, which taught couples about the rhythm method in 1936 in Boston. And it was the first institution of its kind in the United States. So he was actually teaching women about how to 
take control of their body and use natural ways to prevent themselves from having 50 children. He was because he believed that it was a woman's God-given right to determine what kind of life she wanted and how many kids she wanted. And he was radical. I've said it before, but interestingly enough, this is what the Catholic Church now says should be the way that we control family planning. And he also broke the laws, the state laws in the 1940s by teaching his medical students about birth control and teaching them to teach their patients about birth control. Radical. He was. Like, it's it's funny. It's easy to kind of like be like, oh, yeah, it's so crazy. But Jesus Christ, he was going out on a limb. I know. I just think about how much we studied birth control in medical school. And I cannot believe that at one time it was Consider radical. One rogue doctor in Massachusetts was like, guys. So in 1943, he asked the Massachusetts legislature to let doctors teach people about birth control, please. And then he was still super Catholic, still super Catholic, but he wrote a book called Voluntary Parenthood in 1949 that explained birth control to general audiences. Okay, so that's our kind of leading man, John Rock, the ironic birth control champion. So enter our... Mad scientist. Yes, yes, yes. This man's name is Gregory Pincus, and he was born in 1903 to Russian Jewish parents uh, in upstate New York. His grandparents actually lived on like a big hippie commune. Like a utopia. Yeah. Founded by a Zionist who was like, upstate New York will do until there's Israel. So is he part of the elders of Zion? Chances are. Oh, no. So in 1934, he was working at Harvard and said he'd kind of figured out how Figured out how to do IVF in rabbits. So it's in vitro fertilization. Yeah, so like way ahead of his time. Unfortunately, Aldous Huxley had just published A Brave New World and... All about eugenics. Yeah, um, and IVF and like mm -hmm. test two babies, no one has sex for procreation, all those things. And so when a journalist got a hold of the story about the rabbit IVF, they were like, real life! Real life Aldous Huxley! Yay! And Harvard was like, hey, uh, Greg, hey, Greg, about that, uh, that tenure thing. Uh, no, no, no mad scientist at Harvard. Don't be silly. So he, he was kicked out of Harvard. He decided he would just found his own laboratory. Okay, cool. Because he's a mad scientist. And so he founded one of the first privately run laboratories. Oh, really? For biomedical research in the United States in Shrewsbury, Massachusetts. It was called the Worcester foundation they bought an old house brought a guy over from china and like let him sleep on the floor and they had a little lab and it was like a very shoestring operation like he and one other guy ran it the guy would like mow the grass with his shirt off and then come in and do experiments it was very it sounds very silicon valley so you're like a birth control startup absolutely so he met sanger at a dinner party in 1951 margaret sanger she's gonna be next she was able to secure a small grant from Planned Parenthood of about $1,000. Which, that's her organization. Yes. And it started as the American Birth Control League and changed to Planned Parenthood later. And then he does a few experiments and he determines that progesterone works to stop ovulation in rats. Mmm. Science is coming into play. It is. So, speaking of Margaret Sanger... Which I seem to say a lot on this podcast. We've recently said a few disparaging things about Margaret Sanger. Ah, I have really nuanced feelings about Margaret Sanger. She's a very nuanced character. It's true. So tell us about her. Why, why is she so nuanced? Everything about Margaret Sanger is an exercise in contradictions. 
She never fully makes sense or goes one direction. She was born the sixth child of a large Irish Catholic family in 1879 in New York. And she became a nurse on the Lower East Side. And during her employment as a nurse, she would see things like women who'd paid $5 for back alley abortions, literally back alley abortions that had been cut up and hacked and everything else and not properly cared for. And she was kind of left cleaning up the dirty work. And she also was exposed to, I mean, now we would call it cyclical poverty. We would understand that children of parents who don't have means to care for them grow up to be parents of children who won't have access to goods and resources because their parents don't have means to care for them. And she was very tuned into that idea. And I think it came from working in kind of this lower class neighborhood in the medical field as a nurse. And she became a suffragist and she also became a staunch advocate for birth control. And so she started publishing a journal called The Woman Rebel. And the tagline was, no gods, no masters. God, that sounds like it could be out now. Right? And people would still be like, can you believe this trash? Oh, for sure. And this was in 1912. Badass. She was badass. And so the Comstock laws very much singled her out. Anthony Comstock was a man on a motherfucking mission, too. Like, he felt as strongly about the Comstock laws, his anti-obscenity crusade, as Margaret Sanger felt about the need to get information about birth control out to people. And so when you have two characters, such as Anthony Comstock and Margaret Sanger, come together, you're going to have a massive explosion. So he singled out the woman rebel as being lewd and lascivious. Oh, no. Oh, no. And it's actually the place where the term birth control was coined. But she was indicted for distributing obscene materials. And she fled to England. Yeah, but she didn't stay there very long. No, she came back with a vengeance. In 1916, the bitch is back. She opens the first birth control clinic in the United States, in Brooklyn. How's that go? Well, they do great, fantastic, amazing for 10 whole days. And then they're raided by the vice squad. Oh, no. So the vice squad comes in Margaret Sanger's birth control clinic, busting up in there. They confiscate all the diaphragms, all the condoms, and arrest all the women. Lewd and lascivious. How dare you, they say. Pretty sure they actually said that. And so she is taken to court along with her sister, Ethel Byrne, who is the mother of Olive Byrne. Who we've talked about before in our lie detector episode. Pants on fire. That's right. And she was the polyamorous lover of William Moulton Marsden. That's right. The creator of Wonder Woman. It's all coming together, folks. Just wait till we do the obscenity trials. <laughs> so Ethel Byrne was Margaret Sanger's sister, and she'd co-founded the birth control clinic in Brooklyn with her. And when she was arrested, she decided she was going to jail. Not only was she going to jail, but she was going to go on hunger strike. And she stri- was on hunger strike for so long that Margaret Sanger went to officials and negotiated for her sister's release. Wow, how'd she do that? Well, she promised them that Ethel Byrne would never be involved with the birth control movement again. And there's much speculation that this was very self-serving. Because while Margaret Sanger would go wherever the wind blew in order to get support for her cause, her sister was very, almost like a purist. And she really didn't want the idea of contraceptives to be tainted with other agendas, like 
population growth or eugenics or anything like that. And so Ethel Byrne was taken out of prison and then taken out of the birth control movement and kind of taken out of history. That's so sad. It really is. I like, know. Margaret Sanger was a bad bitch in so many ways. This is where some of that gray comes in. Yeah. Like, like, she would do anything to push her cause along, including, she, like, push her sister out the door. Yeah, yeah. The reason that I can kind of think she's tough shit, like, really, like, a tough woman and not just an egocentric maniac is because I feel like she genuinely believed in her cause. Like, I don't think it was self-serving. I don't think it was even self-promoting. I feel like she genuinely believed that women needed access to contraceptives. And when I say she went along with anyone and everyone that might advance her cause, I mean she spoke at women's auxiliary meetings of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah, we'll get into the eugenics part in a minute. (laughs) Yeah. After the birth control clinic bust, there was a decision in her case called the Crane Decision, which allowed for the distribution and discussion of contraceptives for therapeutic use so loophole that's what that's called lots of loopholes in this story Mm -hmm. when she tried to bring in some contraceptives from japan she got in another court case and that was called the united states versus one package the court ruled that doctors could have access to birth control and info about it and they were allowed to get it through the mail so kind of overturns the comstock laws And that was in 1936. So she made some major headway even before and outside of her work with the birth control pill. Which she has like literally been fighting Anthony Comstock since 1914 at this point. There was one instance where her husband at the time, Mr. Sanger, was Mm -hmm. out on the street and this man walks up to him. And he's like, lots of in the story too. He's like, hey, can I get a little of that, uh, Sweet, sweet family planning info. And Mr. Sanger's like... He's like, open his overcoat. Yeah, and removes a pamphlet. Got pamphlets, I got condoms, (laughs) I got diaphragms. What you need, what you need, man. Exactly. And he's like, here you go. Here's the pamphlet on regulating family size. And the guy like all but pulls off his face to reveal that he is Anthony Comstock. No! Yes, and he's caught him red-handed. Now Mr. Sanger is arrested. So Margaret Sanger is finally able to overturn these laws. At least as they pertain to birth control, which works. So enter our final character in the story. I kind of think she's my favorite. Yeah, I can't decide if I like her or John Rock more. But this woman's name is Catherine Dexter McCormick. And she is born into a wealthy family in Michigan. In 1875. And her family, like, literally had lines all the way back to the Mayflower. Like, she is blue-blooded, old money, all-American. And she is actually the first woman to graduate from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with a degree in science. She received a bachelor's degree in biology. So a very intelligent person. Truly. And does what she wants. So she marries a man named Stanley McCormick, who is the heir to the International Harvester Company. So he's got money. So much money. And then he went batshit. Okay. Like, he went really batshit. Like, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia, but they think it could have been any variety of things in addition to and on top of and in cahoots with schizophrenia. And so... She put him in an institution, and the doctors wouldn't allow her to see him because they believed that any exposure to the opposite sex might make him 
blow his mind and lose his cool and kind of maybe start throwing shit at people again. And so she dedicates her life to figuring out what's wrong with him. And there's a lot of research emerging at this time about hormones. And she's interested in hormone therapy for the treatment of whatever the fuck is wrong with Stanley. And she's a scientist. She has a background in this. Right. So she spends a lot of time reading about hormones and nothing really helps. But she also becomes convinced that there may be a hereditary component to his madness. And she decides that she is never having children, even if he gets his shit together. And she believes that women should have access to contraceptives. Okay, so that's how she gets involved in this movement. Mm-hmm. And she's also, like, just kind of left to her own devices and bored and really intelligent. And so she gets involved with the suffragist movement and meets Margaret Sanger. And and she's also loaded. Loaded. I bet Margaret Sanger can just smell the money on her. Oh, yes. Just her ears perk up. And she's like, hello, Catherine. You look like a woman of means. She's also maybe as big a badass in a quieter way as Margaret Sanger. Margaret Sanger tells her, hey, we need you to get some some contraceptives for our clinic the next time you go abroad. And she's like, okay, I can do that. She's like, but how will I get them through customs? And she's like, I know. And so she goes to Europe and she buys a bunch of beautiful dresses. And then she hires a bunch of seamstresses to come in and sew diaphragms into the linings of all of her dresses. And then she smuggles them back. Yes, she does. What a badass. She's crazy, crazy cool. That was in 1917. So she's like basically like espionaging this birth control shit. (laughs) And her husband died in 1947. And she gets all that sweet, sweet harvester money. At age 75 in 1950, she decides that she's going to put all of her money and effort into an oral contraceptive. And Margaret's like, we should outsource this. We should get a bunch of people from a bunch of different universities, get everyone doing research, kind of look at it, find the best. And she says, no, I want results, not research. Nice. And so she says, you find a private lab. And we are going to make this happen. I think of her like Weezer in Steel Magnolias where she's like, I have more money than God, Clary. Like in my mind, they are Clary and Weezer from Steel Magnolias. And it just makes this so much better. So one day Margaret's like, all right, you need to go meet Dr. Pincus. And so she loads her up and takes her to Shrewsbury. Catherine McCormick has one conversation with Pincus and he tells her what he's doing with progesterone. And she kind of nods. She thinks back to her hormone research, considers it, says, how much do you need? He's like, I need a lot. And she's like, how's 40,000? So start. So we have a revolutionary feminist, mm-hmm. Margaret Sanger, mm-hmm. and her cash cow scientist, McCormick. Yeah. And they meet up with our mad scientist, mm-hmm. Pincus, who has been doing a lot of research on the hormone progesterone on its effects on birth control. In animals. In animals, well, of course. You say, of course. Well, I mean, it's where you but, start. But do you remember the good good Catholic doctor? Dr. Rock. Dr. Rock may or may not have been experimenting with progesterone just a little bit, too. Just a little. He may have been injecting his patients with it. <laughs> as, and, a, as a form of birth control? No. In what way? In his infertility clinic. He decided since they weren't fertile anyway, may as well just do this and make sure... If an infertile patient could get pregnant while they were taking progesterone, it would really disprove his theory, right? So he was like, can't hurt. And he also believed that there might be some therapeutic effect to getting off of it. And 
a lot of his patients actually did have what they called the rock rebound, where they would come off of the progesterone and get pregnant. And still used today. Yeah. And still used today, progesterone burst therapy. Right. And that was what he originally thought. And he may have had some interest in the effects of progesterone as an anti-ovulation agent as well. So we've got this entire cast of characters together. We've got the band together. It's true. We do. What great and terrible things do they do? Oh, so many. So Pinkus knows that he's got to test this. He knows it's going to work. Like He just he, he sees the science. Which, can you explain the science? Well, the science is actually pretty easy as science goes. Okay. It's the easiest of hormonal things to understand. Can you do it without a diagram? I'll try. Very briefly. The easiest way to think about it is that the female body already has an off switch. That's called death. For ovulation. Oh, okay. And that's called pregnancy. That's called death. (laughs) All you have to do is trick the body into thinking that it was pregnant and they would no longer ovulate. In that way, they would give progesterone. And by giving a large dose of progesterone... You can trick the body into thinking it's pregnant and thus not ovulating. Back to our character drama. So they're in Massachusetts. Our extremely staunch anti-birth control state. Right. Very Catholic. Catholic. And they want to do this experiment to see if birth control works. Probably not going to go over so well. Pincus and Rock get together and they decide that they're going to officially study what happens in an organized fashion, and they enlist 50 women, and they call it a fertility study to test the effects of progesterone. Not an anti-fertility study. Right, and that's fine, by all means. More babies. More babies. So they start doing that together, and those are the first trials, and that takes place in 1954. And then in 1956, they take the show on the road. This is the big trial. This is the trial that truly proves that birth control oral contraceptive pills work. So they go to Puerto Rico because there are a lot of English speakers. There's a massive overpopulation problem. Birth control is legal there. And women are actively seeking new and different forms of birth control. So they figure they're going to have a pretty easy time getting people involved. And throughout the trials, people are complaining about the side effects. And they're like, yeah, the side effects suck. Would you rather be a little nauseous or would you rather be pregnant? And people are like, bleh, nauseous, please. (laughs) Yeah, and they were using very high doses. Oh, yeah. Very high doses of hormones. Absolutely. Funnily enough, they got a shipment of pills and they were testing them to make sure the compound was right after they'd already given them to people. And they noticed that these progesterone pills that they were getting were tainted. They were contaminated with trace amounts of estrogen. So they wrote to the pharmaceutical company and they're like, send us the pure progesterone. And they sent them the pure progesterone. And then people got even sicker and started having more side effects. And they're like, okay, let's just say that was on purpose. And we'll go back to the estrogen pills too. Can you give us the the wrong ones again? Can we do the wrong ones again? And that mixture, the combination and the ratio that they stumbled upon by accident is still actually used to this day in oral contraceptives. The ratio, but not the dose. No. Because the original dose was approved was 10 milligrams yes the current dose now there are lots of doses but just a generic one that's used a lot sprint tech has 0.25 milligrams of progesterone Ooh. and 35 micrograms of estradiol of estrogen 
It's amazing all these women didn't die. Some did. Shh. They could never prove it. Literally. Literally, that's what they said. They could never prove it. That's right. Searle was sued eventually, the, the chemical company, after 11 deaths resulted from birth control. And they were like, you can't prove it was birth control. <laughs> so in 1957, the FDA approved the pill to treat menstrual irregularity. And suddenly, lots of women had menstrual irregularity. Who knew that this was such a pervasive problem? We still use this trick today. Yeah. We still, before the ACA, Obamacare kind of made it to where any sort of birth control had to be covered by plans on the um, healthcare exchange. We still use this trick. We still do. Oh, menstrual irregularities, dysmenorrhea, pain with periods. Oh, well, you have that. Okay, here. Now, you're, now your insurance will cover it. It's, it's ridiculous. So the original drug produced by the sterile pharmaceutical company was called Inovid. But nobody knew the brand name. Everyone just knew it was the pill. It was approved for a short-term use, just, I think, six months. But women would just go to a new doctor. So women were, like, doctor hopping and having irregular periods all over the place at this point. And this was, like, for a 25-milligram dose, by the way. But Searle filed an application to get a 10-milligram form of Inovid approved by the FDA. And he wanted it approved as birth control. And at the time, the study looked pretty exhaustive. It had been tested on 897 women. It's a good sample size. It is. Now, only like 30 of them had taken it for 24 months or more. They wanted the drug to be approved for long-term use, and people are doing math, and they're like, people could use this for like 20 years. What does it do after 20 years? Like, don't worry about it. It's fine. Don't look at the people with blood clots behind the curtain. This Um, massive dose. Nothing to see here. Move along. But they did. They surveyed a bunch of doctors that had been prescribing the drug and asked basically like, what do you think? Is it good or bad? And everyone was like, it's kind of worth whatever. Women need this. Doctors who worked with women said women need this. And you know, that's still used today. Some drugs that are needed can be kind of fast tracked. Yeah. And... The benefit outweighs the risk to where they do study it extensively, but they may not give it as thorough of a trial if they can prove that it's fairly safe and they can start using it kind of with caveats. Even as birth control, it was only approved for two years of use at a time in its original form. In 1960, the FDA approved Inovid as birth control, which was huge. It was the light coming on. This is what Margaret Sanger and Catherine McCormick have been working toward for years. Margaret Sanger started talking about this in 1912. And it goes down like gangbusters. It kind of does. Not kind of. It kind of does. You have millions of people on it. Oh, yeah. Quickly. But in 1961, it is still a crime to use, use birth control in Connecticut. So, Dr. Lee Buxton and Estelle Griswold, the executive director of Connecticut Planned Parenthood, decide they're going to open poor Planned Parenthood clinics in the state of Connecticut. And Lee Buxton is the chairman of the Yale Medical School. He's a little cred. Yeah. So they're welcome with open arms, as Planned Parenthood always seems to be. They're arrested. The director of the Yale Medical School and the head of Planned Parenthood in the state are arrested 
And that's around that same time, people will start looking at this drug that existed called thalidomide and going, hmm, there seem to be some side effects here. Maybe we should test things a little more. Yeah. And so the FDA is like, well, we're going to have to tighten our belts. So just in under the wire, like if the thalidomide stuff had come out a little earlier in Ovid probably would not have been approved by the FDA. Because they were so worried about everything. So after the arrest, they're going through the appeals process. And that's going to continue for a while. But in the meantime, 2.3 million Americans are using the pill. And the Griswold case comes before the Supreme Court in 1965. And by a vote of 7-2, to two, Griswold versus Connecticut, the court strikes down the Connecticut law prohibiting the use of birth control as an invasion of privacy. Woohoo! Yeah, that's huge. Yeah, it's great. It's a, it's huge. But of course, that that is married couples. Yeah, because in 1967, it is still illegal for unmarried women to obtain birth control in the state of Massachusetts. But John Rock is continuing his dogged pursuit of getting birth control recognized by the Catholic Church. He says that because it uses natural hormones instead of synthetic chemicals that don't exist in nature, which they are synthetic, but He published a book called The Time Has Come, A Catholic Doctor's Proposal to End the Battle Over Birth Control in 1963. So what was some of the social response to this? I mean, obviously we have the laws outlawing it, making it a crime, but we also have the obvious desire by so many people for this. So it must be bad. Definitely. I I feel like that's the way our society works. Well, uh, I saw in three days, different places from three different women a story where they said nuns warned them that if they took birth control even as married women the faces of their unborn children would haunt them on their deathbeds man that's harsh you gotta love a nun gotta love a nun that's a hard line that is not like a sister act nun no it's like sing about your dead children that's gonna be the next tony award winning musical and it's going to be a hip-hop score i cannot wait there must have been a pamphlet circulating around the nuns (laughs) with this story just tell them tell them that the unborn children are gonna haunt them on their deathbeds so you know we talked about some of the side effects of birth control and i mentioned the dosing there are still side effects of birth control for sure does increase your clotting ability. Right. So you can't have strokes and blood clots and things like that. In the 70s, they determined that smoking was a major factor contributing to those blood clots in pill users. And, don't forget, the super high dose of hormones that they were getting. So by lowering the dose of hormones, and it's actually, you really are not supposed to be prescribing birth control to smokers over a certain age. And by doing that, you really reduce that risk of that deadly side effect. And by reducing the dose of those hormones, you also reduce those side effects such as like weight gain and headaches and nausea and all those things that were reported in those original studies. One thing I thought was so interesting, I listened to a book called The Birth of the Pill. It's really good. If you're interested in this, you should definitely pause. Go read it or listen to it. Yep. And you can come back and join us and we'll have inside jokes. Be fun. But one thing they said was women were experiencing breast growth 
as a side effect of the, especially with the higher doses. And they said that like the sales of C cup bras like quadruple in the United States in the 60s. This is all plan of the patriarchy. It's like no one ever wore that before. So, you know, we mentioned, we mentioned a few times that Margaret Singer, you know, she was kind of doing anything and everything to move this along. She was very Machiavellian about this. Oh, yeah. She was getting in with any group she could, including, like you said, the KKK. In with is a, is a strong, strong now, term. If you're speaking there, you're in with them. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm it's sorry. It's the ladies auxiliary. I'm sorry. I don't care if you are tangentially related to the Grand Wizard. <laughs> While Singer was involved with lots of different groups, she did get really mixed up with something that taints the history of the birth control pill. And that is eugenics. <sighs> you know, we already talked about Huxley. Yeah. And he write, wrote about eugenics and things like that in A Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Excellent book. Another pause. Go read it if you did not read it in high school. And she gets tied up with the eugenics movement, which is very popular at the turn of the century. You know, we think of it as a as a kind of Nazi thing. And it was, <laughs> for sure. Oh, no. But, you know, the Nazis modeled their sterilization laws on the United States sterilization laws. Because we're awesome. So go that think was- about that. A minute. That's right. And you know, they used to have lots and lots of talk about eugenics at the turn of the century, including all the baby contests mm. for the best genes. This is what Darwin would have wanted. So, in 1883, Francis Galton, a British biologist, coined the term eugenics. And it comes from the combination of the Latin words for good and origin. And he basically wanted to see selective breeding in humans. If oh, we good. can make a better horse we can make a better person it's one of those like good in theory ideas it's like communism yeah when you like think about it for more than like half a second like that is terrible yeah you're like i see what he said no i don't i don't at all no god that's terrible (laughs) so there were people who were positive eugenicists and they believed that fit people fits in air quotes there should breed Basically like rabbits. Just like go fuck like bunnies and bring all your beautiful babies in to rule the world. Now, fit people were generally considered to be middle or upper class people from the Nordic or Aryan lines. And those were really the only people that should be breeding like rabbits. If you're not, no go, son. So we are not. We would not. I'm too short. I would never be allowed to breed. It's done. And I have Gaelic origins. I look way too Jewish. It's true. It's true. And then there were the negative eugenicists who thought that more of an emphasis should be placed on making sure that reproduction was limited in inferior stock. Mm. So this is when it gets tied up in, you know, what the Nazis liked about it. Yeah. You know, pulling in race, pulling in the socioeconomic part of it. There were two movements at the time. There was racism and then you had nativism which was like not what you would think it is it's like white people are native to everywhere and it's like so uh, you mean like native americans no 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 but singer wrote about eugenics a few times and spoke about it a few times well 
these were people who were willing to give money. There was actually a eugenicist who was giving money in Puerto Rico for other birth control studies at the time that they went to test the pill. But but the movement promoted sterilization for racial minorities and disabled people or anyone who was deemed you know less than superior. Right, and she commented on that several times. Yeah, in 1920, she publicly stated that birth control is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit and preventing the birth of defectives. Good job, Margaret. In another article she wrote about birth control and eugenics, she said, On the contrary, the most urgent problem today is how to limit and discourage the overfertility of the mentally and physically defective. But some people were very anti-birth control within the eugenics movement because they saw it as, and I quote, racial suicide. Right, and why would that be? Well, because only the intellectually superior were able to figure out all these convoluted methods of birth control. Therefore, the best way to keep the unfit from breeding was just to sterilize them. Oh. (laughs) And then you had the opposite. You had a lot of people in the civil rights and black community advocates saying this was like a black genocide. Yeah, they resented the fact that a lot of Planned Parenthood clinics would be established within black communities. And these are mostly run by white personnel. And so you have this kind of very obvious problem with optics where you have white people telling black people not to have a bunch of babies. You know, you still hear some of this rhetoric about birth control, but also about abortions. But now, I mean, everybody's cool with birth control. Pretty much, yeah. Except the Catholic Church. And a lot of fundamentalist Christian groups. Yes. But they don't have a pope. I don't know if they get to, like, officially weigh in. (laughs) Oh, but they have the internet. Oh, no! No, someone told them? Who told them? I know, technology's the devil. Get off. But not like that. For heaven's sakes, not like that. So I found a video and it was phenomenal. There were graphics. There was text on the screen. There was a sad, melancholic female narrator who implored me not to kill babies. It had everything. I laughed. I cried. I had a rage blackout. And it told me some things about birth control. Oh, well, this had to be super helpful. It was. Okay, so this was just a a fundamentalist anti-birth control explaining the perils and evils of birth control video. Propaganda, if you will. Oh, yes. Okay, so some of the things that I learned from watching this informative video were that men will no longer find me desirable if I use birth control because it makes my pheromones go away. (laughs) I wish there were a doctor... Yes. A medical professional. Hands up. Hands up. Okay. Me? You. You. Yeah, tell me. Tell me. Can I mansplain some things? Oh, please do. My little tiny woman brain can't process all these major important facts without graphics. And, oh, well, I don't know if it's mansplaining if you actually are an expert, but... (laughs) Okay, fine. But let's talk about this. You know, this video was great because... I loved that it cited its sources. It did. Oh, cite your sources. They've been listening. They must listen to the podcast. Oh, I'm sure. And we hate it. Yes. We love to cite our sources. And I love that this cited its sources because I got to go read the articles. 
and see like what convoluted mess they had made of the studies. Of course. And so the first thing, like you mentioned, they talked about pheromones. They did. They said that I don't have any anymore because I use birth control. That's because you don't have any at all. But that Victoria's Secret perfume said it had pheromones. Exactly. So really humans do not, to our knowledge, have pheromones. But animals do? Yes, yes. Some animals do. Pheromones are a real thing. Like silk moths have pheromones. Mice have pheromones. But humans really don't. And one of the reasons for that is we don't actually have the organ that senses pheromones. Oh, because we take birth control. That's right. So the vomerionasal organ is something that is an evolutionary trait that we have evolved out of. Okay. So we think instead. We think instead. We're actually very visual people. Primates are in general. Okay. And so pheromones are not as necessary because we're very visually cued creatures. Okay. Now, there have been some studies trying to look at this. And, you know, one of the things that that video said was you know, that you wouldn't find it as attractive. Also, that it would affect who women are attracted to. Uh-huh. And so there was an Italian study done stating that women are more attracted to masculine men when they're ovulating. How do the Italians define masculine? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's what I want to know is what is your criteria? And, you know, of course, you... Don't ovulate while you're on birth control. Correct, yeah. So if you're on birth control, you are not going to be attracted to manly men. You're going to want that sensitive aesthete. Oh, terrible. Um, But you know, when you're trying to get pregnant, you aren't on birth control. Right. So suddenly you're going to throw away your bookish young man you've selected. There was a British study. Okay. (laughs) Where, Where did they find these masculine men in Britain? Exactly. Okay. All right. And showing while on the pill, less masculine men were okay for brief flings, but you're still going to be more likely to choose a masculine man for long-term relationships. Oh, I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> Again, I wonder how they define these characteristics. You know, Michael Caine is their version of a masculine man. Hey, he's pretty masculine. But, you know, you also have other people that like to cite that Women sync up their cycles when they're together. Uh Uh-huh. Also disproven. What? Yeah, it's been disproven very recently. How am I going to know if I'm bonded with a female group if our cycles don't sync up? I don't know. Fine, take your science. So apparently, according to this paragon of journalistic excellence, this video, birth control confuses men. We're easily confused. They don't know what to do because they have nowhere to put their seed. Men are only attracted to fertile women, not even supermodels who are contracepting. So they cited this. So I did go ahead and read this article. And actually, it's a great review article on pheromones and birth control and human sexuality. It didn't say anything about supermodels. I don't know where they got this information from, but it was not listed in this article. So this really is bullshit. It's bullshit. Sorry. It's just bullshit? It's just bullshit. Is that your medical opinion? Well, because, as you like to talk about in your evolutionary biology reading, Mm -hmm. we have mast ovulation. Ovulation. Ah, the key to human existence. Why women should be in charge. All of those things. Mast ovulation is actually really important to societal structure. 
And it's one of the things that creates the dynamics in our relationship. Of other species of mammals and primates, other than bonobos, you do not have mask ovulation. You have a female going into heat, which is an obvious, conspicuous time of fertility. Correct? Correct. You have a physical sign plus pheromones, chemicals released, letting you know that, hey, the time has come. She can get knocked up. Do it. So we don't have that. So we're lucky. Because we don't have this small window of fertility. We have lots of windows of lots of fertilities. So that makes sense. It's good means for creating societies, long-term bonds, family structure, all of those things. Because we keep each other guessing. Exactly. It is a way, as some sociologists like to say, which I love the wording, for women to trick men into bonding. I actually have so many problems with that wording. Even if Steven Pinker says it, it is very hard to think that that is the entire basis of our existence. Tricking men into bonding with us. We are crafty, crafty creatures. But it does give women a bargaining chip, without a doubt. Right. So, supermodel or no, they're not going to know when you're fertile. Exactly. Because we've evolved to not show when we're fertile. Our melancholic narrator asks mournfully what's a man to do when the majority of women are contracepting and he no longer finds them desirable which first of all contracepting yeah i don't don't know if that's even a word but i love the idea that i would never find the woman desirable unless they were ovulating i love the idea that a man named lionel tiger exists in real life yeah and so his study done in the 70s was on monkeys. So he took a group of monkeys and he had the alpha male and had several females. A harem. And he gave a few of them the depot shot. Birth control. Which is a long-term form of birth control. Works for about three months. So they were no longer ovulating. He no longer found them attractive. And okay. he picked different women. Different and, monkeys from the harem yes. that were ovulating. And then he gave all of them depot. All of the lady monkeys in the harem got birth control. Yes. And he became very confused. Were they liberated? Did they go all Caesar on his ass and like take over? Yes. It was very plenty lady apes. Okay. So he got very confused and yes. didn't know what to do with himself. And started like being gay and stuff. I didn't know that was an option. <laughs> <laughs> that was one of the sources for people saying that birth control is making people gay. Oh, no. Thanks, Lionel. But we can go back to just a minute ago. All right. And say, oh, wait. Monkeys have visible ovulation. They go into heat. So, of course, he's not going to find these monkeys sexually intriguing because they're not going into heat. So he's going to pick female monkeys that are going into heat. This seems so logical, right? (laughs) No. Obviously, you need to extrapolate and push your moral agenda onto these monkeys. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. I just hit another snag with this. Why would monkey behavior have any bearing on human behavior since we're not even related to them? Right. The people that are using this study are the same people that are saying we're not evolved from primates. Good. Only when it's convenient, right? Only when it's convenient. If you want to see what nut job this guy is, here's a TED Talk. Oh, God. It's bad. It's awful. It's the worst TED Talk I've ever seen. Like, really, it's the least interesting TED Talk I've ever seen. So just because we can confuse a monkey, we can't confuse a man. Also, monkeys don't have sex recreationally. Also, according to this video, we are murdering children. Why? Because 
birth control keeps children from being born. It says that the pills are preventing the implantation of fertilized embryos. Uh, no. No? No? <laughs> so some, some problems with birth control do, like an IUD would, but hormonal birth control does not prevent the implantation of fertilized eggs. It prevents ovulation. So it prevents you from dropping an egg. Next. Okay. okay. There is estrogen in the water supply, and it's killing fish and leading to infertility and gender confusion. So there is estrogen in the water supply. So it's from the urine of women who are taking hormonal birth control. Uh, no. So the American Chemical Society has done a lot of research on this, and a recent review article showed that the estrogen that would be released from birth control is actually related to farm fertilizer. So not birth control. Nope. Soy, dairy products, animal fertilizer. All humans normally excrete hormones in their urine, not just when taking the pill. And some research even cited that animal manure can account for 90% of the estrogen in the environment. And birth control pills account for less than 1% of the estrogen found in the nation's drinking water supply. So no, sorry. Hmm. Science. That's tricky. It's tricky to get around your science. Okay, and then it says, the video tells me, that the use of birth control and the prevalence of the use of birth control in our society has directly led to problems such as adultery, divorce, abortion, homosexuality, sexually transmitted diseases, promiscuity, Adultery, divorce, abortion, sexuality, sexually transmitted. It lists them like 10 times. I know. I think it's funny. It's like the the Star Wars scroll. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, no, say bullshit again. Sorry, guys. Of course, decreases the amount of abortions. Has nothing to do with STDs. Adultery is not on the rise. The initial Kinsey report that was done in the 50s, so before birth control was really out there, uh, hormonal birth control, say that about half of men and a quarter of women studied had committed adultery. And so the Kinsey study has done more recent studies showing that actually a smaller amount with about a quarter of men, 23.2%, and 19.2% of women indicating that they had, quote, cheated during their current relationship. So there's a different question. But you can see there's definitely not an increase in the amount of adultery over the last 60 years. Damn you and your numbers. I'm sorry. Ruining all the fun. And there's a recent study that I actually was taken aback by when I read by Dr. Twang, a professor at San Diego State University, that found that younger millennials... So technically we're millennials. Are we? Yeah. But we're we're old millennials. That's fine. And that younger millennials are having less sex. Bullshit. I I don't know if I buy it, but you know... The study, and I think from it you can at least glean that they're not having this giant jump. Are they better at lying about it? I don't know. Either way, I'm proud of them. But they found that millennials reported fewer sexual partners than Gen Xers, and even baby boomers did at the same age. And a CDC report, so this has thousands of people, so a huge study that came out in 2015, looking at human sexuality, found that. Fewer 15 and 19-year-olds reported experiencing sexual intercourse than in previous generations, and the decline was significant in both genders, and especially among men. 
That's really interesting. Maybe they're doing everything but. Everything but? <laughs> everything but. They actually did look at that in the study. It's a very interesting study. But so the video also, and lots of people like to say that, oh, it's leading to the massive divorce rate. Everyone likes to cite that number that half of marriages are in a divorce. Sure. There's actually been a steady decline in the divorce rate for the past 20 years. Researchers cite that people married in the 2000s are divorcing at lower rates and are most likely that two-thirds will reach their 15-year anniversary. Our odds are good. Well, I have some numbers on that. I have a feeling, a sneaking suspicion, that that has to do with the average age at which women marry. Right. There definitely is a component to it. In the 60s, it was 21, and now it's closer to 26. So one has to maybe credit birth control with helping push that age back, because if you were facing a risk of pregnancy and being publicly humiliated and shamed, if you got knocked up and you had no means to protect yourself, and now there's less public stigma and more means of prevention, maybe birth control is actually bringing the divorce rate down? Could it be? Could it be? Definitely not. No. No way. Okay, so in the video, they go on to explain that one of the things that birth control is supposed to protect us against in all this rhetoric is helping stop the overpopulation of the planet. But they carefully explain with graphics and numbers. Oh, definitely. That there is no overpopulation problem. It's a lie. The entire population of the globe could fit comfortably in the state of Texas, and we're whining about nothing. We're idiots. Come on to Texas, everybody else is. Yeah, and so in that, they cite Carl Jirasi as one of the co-inventors of the pill. Now, he was part of finding out that progesterone affected ovulation Um, in Mexico. (laughs) He Well, he was involved, but he was also a eugenicist. He was the eugenicist that was already testing in Puerto Rico at the time that they were there that I mentioned earlier. He was very into the idea of actually doing the thing that people think that Planned Parenthood's doing and, you know, picking who got to have babies. Yeah, and he now states that the pill is leading to a demographic catastrophe. Well, that's... That's some shiny-ass spin. That's really impressive wordification. Oh, yes. They like to cite, especially in this video and in other sources, all of these countries that are not repopulating, so not having enough babies to keep their population at a level state or more. Okay. They're all white countries. They're the good countries. Oh, no. And so basically, this just means there are not enough white babies. Are you telling me that we're going to be faced... With a generation of adorable brown babies? No. No. Oh, my God. And so you def- they're definitely pulling some of that eugenics in that video. So there's a lot of rhetoric out right now and propaganda about birth control. It's been in the news a lot recently. I mentioned that the Affordable Care Act, also known as the moniker Obamacare, recently deemed that birth control, um, that, that health insurance plans that were going to be involved with the healthcare exchange had to pay for birth control. Woo! Good job. Awesome. Put that one in the W column. We're on top of it. But set for Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby ruined all the fun. Burwell versus Hobby Lobby was a Supreme Court case that was in which the Supreme Court rendered a decision in 2014 and they stated 
that corporations controlled by religious families cannot be required to pay for contraception for their female workers. So they gave them a loophole. Yeah, they did. You know, the reason that this is talked about so much is that, I mean, there are so many reasons, but let's look at some of the numbers. By 19 years old, about 7 in 10 teens have had sex. Okay. And about 2,000 teens in the U.S. get pregnant every day. And those are numbers from Planned Parenthood. That seems like a lot. Of course it is. These unplanned pregnancies can lead to a lot of problems. Now, of course, you can have an unplanned pregnancy and everything go just fine. It does not decrease your worth at all. Maya Angelou was a teen mom. But there's not a doubt that it can lead to socioeconomic hardship. It makes things harder. It makes your life harder. If your options are to have a baby when you're 15 or to not have a baby when you're 15, your life is going to be harder if you do. You're responsible for yourself and someone else. That's just basic reasoning. That's not a judgment. (laughs) Well, and you have to remember, there are ways to prevent this. Yeah. And there are a lot of people doing things about it. That's true. I mean, we talk about Planned Parenthood. Yes, we do. In case you've not gathered in the last 43 episodes, we're crazy Austin liberals. Yeah, we kind of are. Guys, come on. (laughs) If this is a shock to you, I'm sorry. Get your car back on the road, pick your jaw up off the floor, recover from the shock. And, you know, we want to, of course, before we go into the next topic, encourage you to support Planned Parenthood. Go onto the website, make a donation. You know, we're going to be making a donation from this episode. We're going to take all the proceeds we make from this episode and donate it to Planned Parenthood. And we really encourage you to do the same. It's a worthy cause. And they do some good work. And you may ask yourself, does birth control really make a difference? I found myself thinking, like, the kids who don't seek out birth control, whose parents are not supportive, they're the ones that are having trouble, those that can't afford it. It's not just people who don't get it because of moral reasons. It's availability. Like, does it make a difference if it's accepted in society, or is it a question of availability? I think it's a question of both. I do, too. And there was actually a really interesting large-scale experiment that was conducted in Colorado between 2009 and 2013. So they made long-acting reversible contraceptives, or LARCs, available at no cost. And so those include IUDs and implants, So those are things that can be placed and provide up to five to ten years of birth control. Where you don't have to remember taking a pill or you don't have to worry about your daughter stealing (laughs) your pills and replacing them with baby aspirin. And it's something that is reversible so you can take it out and you're fertile pretty much immediately. So they offered them free of charge, which they are very expensive if you're not covered. It's one of the more pricey options. Not in the long term. That's actually not true. Not in the long term. Yeah, it is actually covered by most insurances because it's cheaper than paying for birth control for five years. Like pills. But if you're going to pay for it out of pocket, it hits hard at one time. Definitely. About 30,000 women took them up on their offer. And this was done for six years. And so they got their numbers back in 2013. They started getting some significant data. And they found that between 2009 and 2013, the birth rate among teenagers dropped by 40% and the rate of abortions dropped by 42%. And it was especially pronounced in the poorest parts of the state. It's incredible. It's amazing. You see a huge drop in abortions. You would think that people that were pro-life would be all about this. Right. You would. 
We'll get there. You would be wrong. In 2009, half of all first births happened before women aged 21. And in 2014, the average age for first birth was 24. Yeah, you've seen this huge decline in teen births over the last few years. Some of that has to do with education, availability of information, i.e. the internet. Mm-hmm. So it has to do with birth control. There's even studies showing that shows like Teen Mom and 16 and Pregnant on MTV actually helped raise awareness and helped very directly decrease the amount of teen births. Wow. Now, one interesting facet of the laws in Colorado is that they do not require parental consent. Oh, that's going to piss some people off. Right, because it's our parental duty to discuss these things with our daughter when we find them canoodling with their boyfriend and say, why aren't you taking precautions after the fact? But for every dollar spent on birth control, they estimate that they save $5.85. So a six-time return. Right, on like Medicaid and like assistance programs for mothers with young children. And the decline in WIC was a quarter. Huge savings. Huge. So if you care about money, if you care about government spending, if you care about abortions... If you care about government spending, if you care about government spending, they estimate that they save taxpayers $80 million. Cool 80 mil. And teen birth rates are declining nationally, but not at the rate that they are in Colorado, where this program was going on. So 20% of all women in Colorado have long-acting reversible contraceptives. And in the nation, only 7% do. So this was offered free. And people took them up on it. There was probably a good campaign, raised awareness, got the word out, advised medical providers to mention it. There was a push, I'm sure, with information, but it was also the free availability. So looking at these results, you have to be pretty impressed, right? Like huge drop in the birth rate among teens, huge drop in the number of abortions, huge fiscal savings. Let's not fund it. Yeah, that's what they did. It came before the state legislature in 2015. And they said, no more funding for this program because it's evil. It's the devil. The devil needs to stay out of my vagina. Yeah. Or more likely, the devil needs to stay out of my children's vagina. Yeah, I think that's actually it. Despite the fact that 6.6 million pregnancies a year in the United States are unplanned, and the fact that the American Academy of Pediatrics (laughs) recommends long-acting reversible contraceptives as its First line of contraceptives for adolescents. Because it is the most effective with the Implanon, the implantable progesterone birth control being 99% effective. Despite that, and despite the fact that it's fully supported by Planned Parenthood, who has kind of got the market on birth control research cornered, no. You know, speaking of urban legends. Okay. As we do. As you do. One element of rhetoric people always say it's like, oh, well, in some schools, in these liberal states, like in Seattle, you'll have these sixth graders. And they can go and get an IUD, and they, but they can't go and buy a Coke. Yeah, well, might be true. Yeah, it's kind of true. <laughs> School-based health clinics do offer long-acting reversible contraceptives without parental consent. Most contraceptives are available to anyone over the age of 12 who goes and finds them. They're not just passing them out like... Tic Tacs. Right, they're not lining them up and saying, you're getting an IUD. And they are at no cost. They don't require parental consent. So theoretically, sure, a sixth grader 
could go get an IUD. And not be able to buy a Coke. Yeah, because they've banned sugary sodas. But they can bring a Coke from home. They just can't buy it at school. What if you bring your IUD Do you from home? home? <laughs> I was going to say, that's that's fine. I don't think they'll put it in for you. But like if you have one already, they're not going to take it away at school. So as all great conservative Christian fundamentalist organizations are called, they have family in the title somewhere. Yeah. So the Colorado Family Action Group had a statement about all of these Colorado laws saying that they were inappropriately inserting the government between children and their parents. Inserting is kind of an unfortunate right? word. Yeah. We should not remove parents from the equation. And this is another bad choice of words. Equipping teens for safe sex without their parents' consent. Just like even saying the safe sex thing. Like, without their parents' involvement bypasses this critical parental right and responsibility. Colorado taxpayers should not be paying for the Cadillac of birth controls for minor children. I don't know if you can hear this pregnant pause out there. A pregnant pause, you say? But it, like, it gives me, it gives me douche chills. Like, it gives me, like... Like, I want to be so angry, and I want to say something eloquent and, like, scrappy and, like, just, like, really let them know how angry I am that this sentence was uttered aloud. And it's just so stupid. There's no basis in fact. It's the Cadillac of birth controls. Maybe we're not going to buy all these poor people Cadillacs. It's carrying so many undertones, and just the choice of words is so poor throughout that statement. Equipping teens for safe sex is bad because, like, there's nothing you can say that makes that true. There's no because you can add. You cannot complete that sentence in any way. Equipping teens for safe sex is bad because. No. Because. No. Because. No. Because. No. Because I don't want my daughter to fuck that guy. It doesn't matter how much you want it. (laughs) I don't want her to. Neither do I, but. This is very much related to minors' access to birth control. Preserving their health, safety, well-being, mental stability, self-image, That's not personal right and entitlement to free speech and First Amendment, Lady First Liberty, Men- Justice. What? What guns? I don't know. Bear arms? What are you doing? <laughs> it just makes me so angry. But these are minors. What about... Grown-ass women. Grown-ass women can have all the birth control they want. Oh, good. Just kidding. Unless Hobby Lobby has anything to say Hobby about. Lobby says no. Chick-fil-A probably does, too. I don't know that. But neither of them are open on Sunday, and it ruins my life. So do you remember Sandra Fluke? Sounds familiar. Okay. So during the ACA legislation going through, do you remember what a headache that was? Does anybody else? Because it was awful. I listened to NPR a lot during that time, and I wish I hadn't. She spoke before a congressional committee to discuss access to contraceptives for women under the ACA. She was a Georgetown law student at the time, and she did a very fine job appearing before Congress, speaking out on behalf of young women who wanted access to contraceptives. She even mentioned one story of a friend who had polycystic ovarian syndrome who used birth control in order to make sure that she didn't get ovarian cyst and so i'm guessing that went over well and everyone clapped and said Mm. thank you miss fluke we appreciate you appearing here as a young law student before congress good job you 
to talk about a very awkward thing that makes us so many people uncomfortable. You're so brave. No. So Rush Limbaugh. No. Yes. Argued that Fluke's speech was all about her wanting to be paid to have sex. And he went on to insinuate that Fluke is a prostitute and asking that videos of all this sex be posted online so you can see what we're getting for our money. So you just want to pop a few Vicodin and watch some like revenge porn. Yeah, basically. What does it say about the college co-ed Susan, which is not her name, Fluke, who goes before the congressional committee and essentially says that she must be paid to have sex? What does that make her? It makes her a slut, right? It makes her a prostitute. She wants to be paid to have sex. She's having so much sex she can't afford the contraception. She wants you and me and the taxpayers to pay her to have sex. What does that make us? We're the pimps. Oh, no, we're the Johns. That's right. We would be the Johns. No, we're not the Johns. Well, yeah, that's right. Pimps is not the right word. Okay, she's not a slut. She's just round-heeled. I take it back. What does that mean, round-heeled? It's an old word for loose or easy. Uh. It means like you go back easy. Which, like, even if I wanted to go with his argument, like, if she were a prostitute, then she'd be making money and could afford it. I don't know. Like, it's just, like, even the argument, if you wanted to accept it as bullshit, besides the fact that it is just completely ridiculous in the first place. Well, if she were a sex worker and she needed contraceptives to keep doing her job, it would be tax deductible. There you go. Business expense. He is really putting down job creators. (laughs) Well, I love that he's like, she's having so much sex she can't afford all the contraceptives. Like, she's using a birth control for every sex act. That's like a birth control pill. Like, is that how it works in his mind? Like, he doesn't that- even understand the concept. She wants to be paid to have sex. This happened in 2012. You just see the, the systematic argument against birth control and taking it as this kind of moral issue i mean first i have an issue like so what if she wanted to be a sex worker let her be a sex worker but that's a whole other story but just the fact that she's using birth control does not say anything about her moral character it says that she's taking control of her body and taking control of her medical needs of medical issues that she's doing something that she has a right to do one of my favorite moments in my my undergraduate education was was in my folklore class my adorable teacher like the cutest person in her world solely brings this guy in shuffles him up to the front and it's this glorious gorgeous man and i have no idea why he's there and out of the blue he starts doing slam poetry the title of his poem was if men could get pregnant, abortion clinics would have drive through windows. And I thought it was amazing. And it's uncomfortably true. It's uncomfortably true how this has become such a moral issue. Has this become such an issue related to gender? Right, because when you see Hobby Lobby executives, they're always represented as men. And the people who need contraceptives in order to keep their family sizes they wanted or continue to pursue their career or whatever, they're always represented as women. As poor, low socioeconomic women. Or sluts. Bobble-headed sluts. But you have the old white men as the establishment, and you have the young rebellious women who are either too stupid or too careless to take care of themselves. Unable to control their desires. That's just a story. Yeah. It's just a story.
Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com. I like to listen.